Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Romans 8, 5 through 11. Just to pick up where we left off, you might remember two weeks ago, Josh brought the word to us last week, so two Sundays ago, uh, we began the greatest chapter, Romans 8, in the greatest book, the book of Romans, in the greatest book, I should say the greatest letter, Romans, in the greatest book, the Bible. Chapter 8 in Romans, we could make the argument that this is the central chapter, most significant, glorious chapter in all the Bible. And this chapter begins with these wonderful words, the sweetest words in the scriptures, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the essence of the gospel, that for those who are trusting in Christ, our sins have been forgiven, our guilt has been removed, that the condemnation that we rightfully should receive has been taken away because of what Jesus has done for us. And so two weeks ago, we talked about that and the implications of that and how wonderful that is. But you might remember I asked a question, a follow-up question to that. I said, why is it that God did that? Why did God go through the trouble of sending his son to die such an excruciating death, to give himself as a sacrifice, to forgive us for our sins, to be raised from the dead for our justification? Why did he do that? Was it just so we'd feel better about ourselves? Was it so that we would be able to fulfill all of our dreams? You know, was it mostly about just our feelings and emotions, or was it about something else? And Paul goes on to tell us very clearly in verse 4, that the reason God saved us is so that the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled in us. That we would be people who would submit to and obey God's law. That's the purpose for which God has saved us and removed our condemnation. Now here's the problem. It's not always the case that Christians live lives that are distinctly different from non-Christians around us. Do you ever notice that? At least when you look at the polls, when you consider the number of people who claim to be Christians, at least in this country, it's really pretty startling. Pew Research poll a couple years ago found that 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. Gallup poll last year found that 75% of Americans claim to be Christians. An ABC News poll last year found that 83% of Americans claim to be Christians. But I don't see 83% of Americans in church on Sunday morning. I don't see 83% of Americans living distinctly recognizable Christian lives. And so we have a kind of a, a disconnect here. We have a case where a lot of people who claim to be Christians live lives that are very much alike non Christians. And that's the question I want to explore today. And that's what Paul is talking to us about here in Romans. Eight. The question is this, what is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, between a believer and an unbeliever? What are the distinguishing characteristics of the two? What is it that distinguishes a born-again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ? Is it that that person votes Republican? Is that what makes that person a Christian? Is it that the person wears a cross around his or her neck? 
Is that what makes the person a Christian? Is it that the person is just nice to people? Just a sweet-natured person? Is that, is that what makes a person a Christian? Is it just a person who supports family values? Is that what makes a person a Christian? Romans 8, 5 through 11 tells us that there is a very distinct difference. There is a, an enormous gulf, actually, that separates the Christian from the non-Christian. And that's what Paul is going to describe to us now. So, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at Romans 8, 5 through 11. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live... According to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Holy Spirit, we call on you now to give light to our eyes, to soften our hearts, to reveal to us the truth of this passage that you might be glorified and we might be built up and strengthened as your people. Do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, what's the difference? What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Three major differences we see in this passage. And the first is this. There is a major difference in the way Christians think, in the way we use our minds. You'll notice that there is an emphasis on the use of the mind here in verses 5 and 6. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. He goes on in verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Two entirely different results connected to what we do with our minds. We often think of the life of the Holy Spirit sometimes as simply something that affects our emotions, that we know that the Spirit is at work in us because of how we feel. But here Paul is emphasizing that our relationship to the Spirit has a lot to do with what we do with our minds. What does Paul mean here when he tells us to set our mind on something? What does this mean? I remember when I was in London um, with Ball State's London Center back in the 80s, we would ride the subway And on the subway, there was a platform, and then there was the train car, and in between the two was a gap. And there were always signs up all over the place that said, mind the gap. It's very important to do. 
to pay attention to the gap, to focus on the gap. Because if you don't watch where the gap is, you could be in trouble. This is a matter of life and death. Mind the gap. Focus on it. Don't overlook it. Pay attention to it. And that's what Paul has in mind here. He's saying there is a tight connection between those things we focus on, those things that we're absorbed in, and the way we live. The workings of our minds, the, the, um, what is preeminent in our thinking has a direct connection on what we do and how we live our lives. In fact, we might say, not you are what you eat, but you are what you think. What's going through your mind on a regular basis says a lot about who you are and what you're like. There was an Anglican bishop, at, uh, William Temple, that said this, your religion is what you do with your solitude. What he means there is that when you get to a place of solitude and quietness and it's just yourself, it's just you and your mind, just you and your thoughts, your thoughts go to certain places. We're all focused on something. We're all preoccupied with something. There's something engrossing all of us in our minds. And it's only you and God that know that. But whatever that is, it says a lot about who you are and where you are spiritually. It says a lot about what you really worship. You know, in Psalm 115, it says, we become like that which we worship. And what we worship is that which we spend a lot of time thinking about. So the life of the mind is very important in the Christian life, and we see that here in these passages. So what does Paul mean? What is the difference in these mindsets between the Christian and the non-Christian? Well, he says this. He says that the non-Christian's mind is on the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What is the flesh? The flesh is not the body. That's the mistake we often make. We think of the flesh as just our, our skin and bones and our physical bodies as if he's saying, don't think about your bodies. That's not what he means. The flesh in the Bible means the sin-dominated life. It means life apart from God. It means the way a person lives when the Holy Spirit has no influence whatsoever in that person. It's the unregenerate life. It's the life of the unbeliever. It's the life of the person who has no regard for spiritual realities or biblical truth. That's the flesh. And this is fleshed out for us, no pun intended, fleshed out for us here in Galatians 5, um, more specifically where Paul says this, the works of the flesh are evident. Here's what the flesh is. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Do you see how not all these things are related to the body? Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the things of the flesh. And what Paul is saying is that the unbeliever is a person whose mind is focused on these things, set on these things. He's minding these things on a regular basis. So, for instance, when it comes to sexuality, you know, the person whose mind is set on the flesh has no regard for what the Bible says 
about how he or she engages in his or her sex life. It's just, it's just not a factor to this person. They're just going to do what they want. They don't care what the Bible says. That's a person whose mind is set on the flesh. But when it comes to money, this is the person who says, my money is my own. I earned it. It belongs to me. I can do with it what I want. I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to build it up and stack it up for myself in my future. I have no desire to give it away. People can make their own money. That's a mindset on the flesh. When the person thinks of death and the afterlife, this person has no concern for eternal realities. No concern for whether he or she is going to heaven. No concern for the fact that there is a place called hell where people go. They're not concerned about these things. As far as they're concerned, they're going to die and get eaten by worms, and that's it. That's the mind set on the flesh. And that's the way the unbeliever thinks, according to Paul. Very big difference from the way the Christian thinks. The Christian's mind is on the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit, verse 5, set their minds on things of the Spirit. Now, by Spirit, he doesn't mean just the soul. That's another mistake sometimes people make. He's not just talking about the spiritual nature. He's talking about setting our minds on things that are of concern to the Holy Spirit. Those things the Holy Spirit loves and is interested in, those are the things the Christian sets his mind on. So, what is the Holy Spirit interested in? What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit, first and foremost, points people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit shows Jesus in his glory. The Holy Spirit moves people to receive Christ as Savior and to put their hope in His shed blood and His resurrection. That's first and foremost what the Holy Spirit does. A person whose mind is set on the Spirit thinks about that kind of thing. The Spirit-led mind thinks about the Gospel, thinks about how wonderful it is to be saved. What a glorious thing it is to know that there's no condemnation anymore, to know that heaven awaits us in the future. The mindset on the spirit wants to know how to please this God, wants to know how to submit himself or herself to the word of God and pursue righteousness and holiness. Those are matters of the spirit. So, using the same examples I used a moment ago, when it comes to sexuality, a person whose mind on the spirit is thinking, I want to submit my romantic life, my sex life, to the scriptures, to the lordship of Christ. I want him to be pleased in the way I conduct myself. So I'm going to obey the Bible in this. With regard to money, the person says, you know, everything I have is given to me by God. I'm a steward of the resources he has granted to me. And he has given me these things that I might advance his kingdom. And so I'm going to be generous. God's been overwhelmingly generous to me. So I'm going to be generous to others. And I'm going to give to my church, to the Muncie Mission, to the needy, to the poor. When it comes to the afterlife, the mind set on the spirit realizes that eternity goes on for a long, long time. The mind set on the spirit is concerned about that and wants to know where he or she is going to go and is investigating these things. Knows that in their sin they deserve to go to hell but rejoices because of what Jesus has done to free us from that condemnation and is glad in the future promises of eternal life 
with Christ. That, that's a mindset on the Spirit. Now, I don't mean to say that Christians are thinking about those things all the time, and I don't think that's what Paul means either. Um, Paul was a tent maker. He had another job. He had to do other things. We've got to make dinner. We've got to go to work. You know, we've got to think about other things. What Paul's talking about here is just a general pattern of thinking. The mindset on the flesh, not interested in spiritual things. The mindset on the spirit is drawn in to the things that Paul is talking about. So, of course, the challenge here to you is just to ask yourself, which of these describes you? In which category do you fall? Particularly in those times of solitude. It's a challenging thought. I know how my mind goes awry sitting at the stoplight by myself. Paul says here there is an important component in the way we think related to who we are. Now, an important distinction to add to this that I think is helpful as we think about the life of the mind. Do you know that you can think about Christian things in a secular way? So, you know, this isn't just all about just making sure you're thinking of angels and cherubs all the time. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Because you can actually be in kind of a spiritual, religious, so-called atmosphere, but have a very secular kind of worldly mindset. You can be in church, for instance, and all you're thinking about is, when am I going to get out of here and get to lunch? I wonder how the cults are going to do today. Cults are long gone this season, but looking forward to the Super Bowl next Sunday or thinking about when is this guy going to quit preaching? The sermon's so long, it's so cold in here, to thinking about how irritated you are about the person down at the end of the row. You know, that, that's a way that you can be in a Christian environment, giving the impression you're thinking about spirit-led things when you're actually thinking in a very worldly way. But there's also the opposite of that. You can think about so-called secular things in a very Christian way. You can think about the world in which we live outside of church in a very Christian way. The astronomer who is discovering amazing things about our universe can be overwhelmed with the glory of God and magnify the power of our creator and can be driven to worship through science. You can sit down and have a, a, a bountiful meal and eat it and enjoy it, and your heart can be filled with gratefulness to God for his generosity to you in providing you such a good meal. You can read a good book and watch a good movie and come to a deeper understanding of a person's plight or situation and be moved to compassion for that situation because of what you're learning. You're thinking Christianly, Christianly, even though you're doing something that some might call a secular activity. So there's much to be said here in the way we think. And what Paul is saying is that there's a very big difference between the life of the mind in a Christian and the life of the mind of a non-Christian. And I'll just leave you with this point, with this quote. Tryon Edwards says this, Thoughts lead to purposes. Purposes go forth to action. Actions form habits. Habits decide character. And character fixes our destiny. Don't undermine the significance, the spiritual relevance of your thought life. So that's the first thing Paul shows us. The second thing, there is a big difference in the way Christians live. 
Not just the way they think, but in the way they live as well. And Paul shows us here a very profound difference between these two. And what he says is that Christians are people who can please God. But now listen, and this is going to strike you maybe as a bit of an overstatement. But what Paul says is that non-Christians cannot please God. They can't. Look at verse 8. This is, I'm not saying this, Paul's saying this. Look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, we might say, well, what is it really to be in the flesh? Because there are some people who say to be in the flesh is not to be an unbeliever, but to be what might be called a carnal Christian, or to be um, a kind of a, you know, a minor league believer, a low-grade believer, a defeated Christian, a person who is saved, but a person who is living under the dominion of the flesh. So that's a pretty common interpretation of this, actually, and, and I, think that's, I think that's wrong. And the reason why is because of some other clues that we get here in the text. I think it's pretty clear Paul is talking about unbelievers here. Just look at verse 7. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile to God. Now certainly as Christians we doubt God sometimes. We get angry with God. We get frustrated with God. But it is not the case that a Christian is on an ongoing permanent basis in a state of hostility against his creator and redeemer. He goes on in verse 7 at the end. This mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It doesn't even have the ability to submit to God's law. That certainly doesn't describe a Christian. It's one of the wonderful things about being redeemed is now we are liberated to please God and obey His law. Paul is saying the one in the flesh, it's impossible for that person to do so. But the most convincing argument for this being a reference to unbelievers is verse 9 because Paul shifts now his focus from those in the flesh and then he says you however so now he's talking about a different group and he's speaking to Christians and he says you are not in the flesh but Christians are in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you and then he says this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If the Spirit of Christ does not live in a person, that person does not belong to Jesus. In other words, that person is not a Christian. That's what Paul is saying. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him or her. There's no category in the Bible for the carnal Christian, the Christian who has been saved by Jesus, but for some reason God is holding back the Holy Spirit from that person until that person does something else to earn the Holy Spirit. That's not biblical teaching. It's such a wonderful thing to know that not only has Jesus paid for our sins, but God the Father then has sent the Spirit to live in us. We see a great Trinitarian emphasis here. Do you notice how we've got references to God, we've got references to Christ, and we have references to the Spirit. 
because our salvation is wrapped up in the work of the triune God, the Holy Father who plans salvation, sets his heart on us from before the foundation of the world, sends Jesus then to do the work necessary to save us in his life, death, and resurrection, and then goes the whole way and fills us with his spirit. It's like he's drawing closer to us. You have the Father in heaven. Jesus comes into our world, and then the Holy Spirit comes into our heart. And now we're freed to actually please God. If you're a Christian, friend, if you're a Christian, do you know the Holy Spirit of the living God lives inside you? What an encouragement that is. What an incentive that must be to try again in your fight against whatever sin you're dealing with right now. You're feeling so defeated. You're feeling there's no way. You're saying, I can't do it. Yes, you can, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. John 7, here's what Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is, a, this is said about whoever believes in me, Jesus says. Not the super Christians, not the exalted Christians. Whoever believes in me. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Out of every Christian, the Holy Spirit can expect rivers of living water. Now it's going to be different for different Christians some of us are growing faster than others. It's not to say that everybody's going to be the same. But it is to say that there's a difference between Christians and non-Christians. There's a power in you that is not in them. Now let me clarify here. When I say, when Paul says that unbelievers cannot please God, that, that does, that's not the same as saying that unbelievers can't do good things. Okay? Un unbelievers can raise happy families and be hard workers and, and be moral people and be honest and loyal, all those things. But, but there is that difference. There's a difference between doing outwardly good things and doing things that are genuinely pleasing to God. And the difference, and the reason why unbelievers can't please God, is because of the attitude of the heart that Paul talks about in verse 7. And the attitude of the mind, I should say. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's a hostility in the unbeliever against God. Now, that might sound strange. You might say, well, I know, I know non-believers who they don't hate God. They're not ranting about how much they dislike God. Yeah, okay, you know, outwardly, maybe that's the case. But, but here's the difference. When you get right down to it and you ask that person, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner who has offended God? The typical unbeliever is going to say, I'm not sure I can say that. When you ask him, do you believe that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and that the blood that he shed on that cross was necessary to pay for your sin? Your sin is so bad, Jesus had to bleed for it. And if you're going to be saved, you have to trust in the fact that he is not in that tomb anymore, but he's resurrected from the dead. The unbeliever is going to say, well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy that. What Paul says is that's a, that, that's a hostility. That's an unwillingness, a hardness of heart that says, I don't want that. 
And that's what describes the unbeliever. And that's why, no matter how outwardly good they might be doing things, everything good that they do is tainted by this hostility in their heart. I've used this example before, but it's like a, um, <clears throat> a, a boy, a teenager, let's say, who's parents tell him that he must clean his room if he's going to go to the movies tonight, but he doesn't want to clean his room. But he goes in and he does it anyway because he wants to go to the movies, but the whole time he's cleaning his room, he is in hostility against his parents. He's grumbling, he's angry, he's complaining, he's muttering under his breath. Is he doing a good thing? Yeah, he's cleaning his room. That's a good thing. But there's hostility in his heart that taints the thing that he's doing. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what he means when he says an unbeliever can't please God. So just to set this up, there's, just imagine two people. I mean, there's your neighbor. And your neighbor has the perfect family and the beautiful home and is, is wealthy and involved in their community. They're doing everything right. But they have no interest in Jesus, no interest in the afterlife, no interest in the scriptures. They can't be bothered with those things. As much as we might recognize what those people are doing and acknowledge that and affirm it and thank them and befriend them and love them, according to Paul, we have to say they're not pleasing God. But let's say there's you, Christian. Your family life isn't so good. You've got a divorce in your background. You haven't handled your money maybe so well. You've got a lot of debt. Nobody's recognizing you in the community. Nobody's raving about you. But you love Jesus. You know that your sins are too many to number. You know that the righteousness of Christ is yours. And your heart leaps just a little bit every time you think about that. You're the one who can please God. That's what Paul is saying. It's a big difference in the way Christians live from non-Christians, and it mostly has to do with the attitude of the heart. Major difference. One last thing. There's a difference in the way Christians hope. There's a difference in the way Christians hope for the future is what I have in mind particularly here. The hope for the afterlife. Hope for the future. Because here's a big difference between Christians and non-Christians. It's that in our culture, isn't it true that there is a, a certain idolatry of youth, isn't there? There's just this kind of overwhelming dread about getting old and, and aging. Um, Mickey Rooney, the guy who used to do those commentaries on 60 Minutes, he said, what a paradox it is that a long life appeals to everyone, but getting old appeals to no one. <laughs> Remember the Who, the band The Who, Pete Townsend, my generation? I hope I die before I get old. I wonder what he says about that now, that he's old. I think he's pushing 70 now. Um, Paul recognizes this, doesn't he? In verse 10, he says, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead... What Paul is acknowledging here is the, the decay that our bodies experience as a result of sin, because of sin, he says. Now, he doesn't mean the body is literally dead at that moment. Of course, Paul is alive, and he's writing to people who are alive. I think what he means is the body is it's as good as dead. 
that our bodies are mortal. We were created to live forever, but because of sin, we've lost that blessing, and now we're all destined to die. It's a hard truth, but it's true that your first breath you take in this world is one of the last you'll ever take. We're all in the process of dying. We're all one day closer to our last day on this earth. And for a lot of non-Christians, that's a terrifying, overwhelming, depressing thing to consider. But for the Christian, although we acknowledge the sadness and the tragedy of what sin has done in bringing death into this world, we can prepare to die well. And that's, that's my charge to you, and that's something that I've thought about and something that, that I want to do. I want to be ready to die well. I don't know what I'm, how I'm going to react when I get the news that I've got cancer and I'm lying there in the bed and I think I've got two or three days left. Am I going to be filled with despair? I hope not. You can prepare, and I can prepare now to die well. The former pastor of Westminster Presbyterian was a guy named Rodney Stortz. was there before Petrus. Rodney left Westminster, went to St. Louis, and planted a church there called Twin Oaks. And Rodney was the pastor there. When I was in seminary in St. Louis, I had a good friend who went to Twin Oaks and worked with Rodney. And it was during that time that Rodney was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember my friend telling me that in one of the elder meetings, Rodney was speaking to the elders and he said, all these years I've been trying to show you how to live, but now I'm going to have to show you how to die. I mean, how could could a man like that say that with that kind of peace and confidence? It, it, It has to be because he believed in what verse 11 says. Look at this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is, if you're a Christian, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What Paul is promising here is the resurrection of the body on the day of the Lord that we talked about with the kids, the very last day, Jesus is going to come back and all in whom the Spirit resides will be risen out of their graves and redeemed, perfected, glorified bodies. It's one of the most wonderful promises in all of Scripture, what the Christian has to look forward to. Not just the salvation of our souls. Jesus died not just to save our souls apart from our body. God created his soul and body together. The effects of sin affected our souls and our bodies. And Jesus came to die in his body and be resurrected in his body so that one day you and I would also be resurrected in our bodies. It's a complete, full, and total salvation that is granted to us in the gospel. This is what Jesus promised in John 6. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'm going to raise Him up on the last day. Man, that is is good news. That is exciting things. I mean, for those of you who have lost loved ones lately, you know, you can know you're going to be resurrected in your body one day. And so is your loved one, and you're going to be reunited with that person. Not as souls mingling together in resurrected bodies. Johnny Cash um, sang a song very close to his death. I mean, I think this was in months of his death. 
and uh, it's on one of his albums. It's called Ain't No Grave. Uh, you should look it up if you haven't heard the song. You can hear the weakness in Johnny's voice because he's close to death. But he sings, There ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, look way down the river. And what do you think I see? I see a band of angels, and they're coming after me. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Here is the most distinct difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. This is our hope as believers. Resurrected bodies. The unbeliever doesn't have that hope. The way we can live with strength and peace in the present is by trusting in these promises for the future. So, now you know the difference between the unbeliever and the believer. And as I close here, I just put the question to you again. Which one are you? In which category are you? Could be you've been coming to church here for months, maybe even years. You've thought you're a Christian, but actually your mind has been on the flesh the whole time. You've had no hope for the afterlife. You've never put your faith in Jesus. You can do it today. You can become a Christian today. Don't promise me you're going to be a better person. Don't say, I'll come to church every Sunday morning. No, believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That's what you need to do. Repent, turn from your sins. Have your mind transformed. Receive the Spirit of God to enable you to obey Him and receive the promise of the resurrection on the final day of the Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful to you for the wonderful promises in your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who fills us and empowers us. God, enable us to be people who fulfill the requirements of your law in our lives as we trust in what Jesus has done for us and as we long for his coming again. In his name we pray.